So I sent a question through email to uh, Dr. McKnight, who is a physician, a part of our Gateway family here, and I asked this question. Here was my question was, um, you know, how important is it to have a clear and accurate diagnosis? And I want you to just read the response that she said, because this was good. She said, it's incredibly important to have an accurate diagnosis from the beginning. This helps us decide what additional testing might be needed, treatment options and expectations for the course of the disorder, expected timeline of symptoms, recovery, etc. If the diagnosis is incorrect, the condition may worsen. Someone may go through unnecessary testing or treatment. They may suffer longer than needed, and they may have additional problems as a result of not accurately addressing the original problem early. Now, this is brilliant because the direction I wanted to go is to talk about how important it is for us to diagnose our problems correctly spiritually. But I just want you to think about this. If we do not get an accurate spiritual diagnosis, what could happen? Let me just read what she said, obviously speaking in the physical medical realm, but think about this spiritually. If we don't diagnose correctly, the condition may worsen. Someone may go through unnecessary testing or treatment. They may suffer longer than needed. They may have additional problems as a result of not accurately addressing the original problem early. Um, today we are continuing in the book of James, and James chapter 4 diagnoses one of the problems that we all have and that we need to deal with honestly. So let's begin reading. In James 4, starting in verse 1, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. I want to stop there and we'll, we'll read uh, a little bit further in a moment. But you know, one of the things that I love about the book of James, the book of James is very direct. You know, it's just you either you like that or you don't maybe, but he is very straightforward. Just this is how it is. This is the problem. This is what needs to be dealt with. And so he asks the question, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? And then he just gives the answer. It's interesting how you see a different dynamic here. For example, the way Jesus taught. You know, Jesus tended to be more ask questions, not so much give the answer. You know, in fact, his disciples were often coming to Jesus saying, would you please explain what you meant when you were saying this? You know, they, they didn't, he wasn't always just real straightforward about it. And I think his reason was he was causing people to want to think, you know, try to lead them to come to these conclusions on their own. James is a little more direct. Sometimes I think I drive my staff crazy because I don't always give them just direct, clear answers to things. They come ask a question. I ask other questions. What about this? What have you thought about this? What do you think about that? And uh, I see some smiles over there like, yes, I can relate to this. And all I can say to you, to, to our staff is, I'm sorry that I'm, you know, a little bit too much like Jesus, you know. <laughs> and his, <laughs> no, <laughs> there is a place, there is a place for both of those. Uh, for a more direct approach and for kind of, you know, thinking and questioning. But James is more direct. 
And so he asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And then he answers it. So the first thing I want us to do is to identify, to get a correct diagnosis, what is our problem? The problem is this, our selfish desires. That's what he says. What is it that causes these fights and these quarrels? It's because you don't get what you want. These selfish desires that every single one of us has, it's part of this sinful nature that is just born into us, we have these desires. How do we handle them? Do we allow those selfish desires to push us down this road of give me what I want and I have to have what I want? Or is there another approach, which as we'll see today, there should be another approach. Now sometimes there may be a, a, a quarrel or a fight or some kind of tension that arises out of something other than a selfish desire. I had an example of that actually a week ago Saturday. I was at the rec center and I noticed a guy uh, uh, that was on the second floor at the time and there's a basketball court if you're not familiar with it. Down on the first floor you can kind of look down over him. And this guy was like really seemed really agitated about something, just motioning, and I'm just thinking, that's weird. You know, I mean, it's one thing if you're playing a game and you're upset, but he's just standing up there watching him. I don't know, this is odd. You know, it struck me as odd. And then I noticed later on when I was on one of the, the little exercise equipment things that looks down over the gym, he had his son down there and was instructing him and very angry about something. I don't know, he wasn't following instruction right. I don't, I don't know what it was. Maybe they had a fight at home before they came. I don't know what the backstory is. But he was like up in his son's face, you know, really going after him and gave him the ball. And then he just <clears throat> tried to slap it out of his hands, which the son held on. It was just awesome. I want to go, go, dude. Yes. But dad needed to bow down a little bit. I mean, he was really getting fired up, right? And, and I began at this point, I began to start thinking through my head, what am I going to do if this guy hauls off and hits him or does, you know, I'm, I'm watching and paying attention to it and I'm concerned because this is a, you know, he's probably, he's, you know, 15, 16, maybe 17 years old. But in my head, I'm thinking we may have an issue here. And if he doesn't calm down and especially if he hits this kid, I will yell at him loud enough that everybody in this entire rec center will know what is happening, right? I'm going to draw attention to it. Hopefully for the, for the purpose of, you know, making sure this kid is okay. But I mean, all this is going through my head. Uh, we, we might have some type of conflict happen here. The motivation for that in that case was not a selfish desire. It was truly, I'm concerned about this teenage boy and want to make sure he's okay. Now, contrast that to about two days later, Monday afternoon. Uh, Mondays, I'm out of the office, uh, Sean and I usually go on a lunch date together. We try to spend the day together on Mondays. And so we went to a lunch place that we go to, you know, I'd say once to twice a month. We both always get the same thing. She's been getting the same thing for years. And so we go in and there's only one place, you know, there's, there's not a lot of places because, you know, tables are spread out, whatever. And she says, I'll go sit down over here. You know what I want. I'm like, I got it. So I go to order her food for her. And I order mine, and then I order hers, and they say, um, yeah, we don't, that's not an option anymore. It's not on the menu anymore. And I said, yeah, I know. And they, sure, I mean, they'd taken off the menu about a year ago. I said, I know, but they always do it. There's a button on the, on the thing. And he goes, no, we can't do that. And I, y'all, I just wasn't, I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't mentally prepared like I should. And I just start, I mean, I start to bow up along. I'm like, what do you mean you can't do it? You know, this is my wife. You're going to give my wife what she wants. You know, I didn't say that, but I'm thinking these things going through my head. And I begin to get upset about it. And I said, well, what do you, you know, 
they always do that. No, no, they took a corporate decide. And I said, when did corporate decide? And at this point, I think because I'm upset, my volume's probably starting to go up a little bit. You know how this works. They decided about a year ago. I said, we've been in the last month, and we get, we get the same thing every time. About that time, Sean comes half running over to the counter. and goes, it's okay. I'll have something else. You know, it's like, let me, let me just, because I'm, and at that point, I'm realizing, yeah, I probably didn't handle that the best way I, I could have, right? That's when, when I realized there was a, a problem because, why? Because I wanted something that they were not willing to give me. And, and this selfish desire, and I'm thinking, you know, unfortunately, most of the time, if there's tension, if there's a quarrel of some sort, it's not because, you know, I'm wanting to protect a teenage boy. It's more because you don't give me what I want, and so I get upset. And, and, and that's exactly what James is speaking to. And the worst part of all of that, by the way, was the fact that I realized, yeah, 24 hours ago, I just preached about taming the tongue, and I just finished reading a book on how to influence people without being real confrontational and things like that. I mean, yeah, I just basically failed on both of those, those things. Not a good response to that. But, um, but, you know, those things, and here's the thing, too. Sometimes those things can just jump up on us when we're not ready. You know, I just didn't, it was kind of one of those, I mentally didn't see that coming, and it took me by surprise, and I'm thinking later, I could have handled that differently. Wish I had uh, handled that differently. Um, so, but, but it's, it speaks to the power of this when, when you have an expectation or a desire and that desire is unmet. You know, how do we respond to that? And it says in um, verse 2, you know, these desires says you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking, oh, come on, you know, that's a little strong. I mean, I was a little upset with this guy, but... You know, killing was not, I wasn't even in the zip code of that. You know, like that's not even on the radar anywhere. I didn't even want to do him any physical harm. I was just thinking lots of very unkind thoughts about him because he didn't give me what I want. And, and so why would it say, why would it talk about that you kill? And then I remember what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, the first part of 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You know, just like Jesus redefined adultery, you remember that, you know, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, if you look on a woman lustfully, you committed adultery with her in your heart. He does the same thing with murder. He redefines it and says, if it happens in your heart, then you're guilty. Now, I don't want to downplay, you know, the the significance of what that physical act does because it is a much bigger deal and has much bigger consequences. And certainly if, if you or somebody you know has lost a family member or loved one that's been killed, big deal, right? It's a much bigger deal uh, as far as how we process. But internally, the point for today is this, that internally it's the same, same type of, of thinking that, that Jesus is getting to the heart and saying if you've got this type of attitude towards someone, you have this type of anger towards somebody, then that's along the same lines as actually someone who acts on that and does something that they certainly shouldn't do. Um, so what causes these fights and quarrels? It's our selfish desires. And I read that and I'm like, what, what are we, two years old? You know, we pout and throw a fit if we don't get and get what we want. And sometimes the answer is yes. And that's what he's, that's what he's addressing. So, you know, more or less grow up here. Stop acting like that, um, you know, when you don't get what you want. 
our problem is a lot of times when, when we're in the middle of that, it's easy to point out where somebody else is wrong, right? They are acting this way. They are being ridiculous about this. <laughs> they are. <laughs> and we sometimes forget, I am actually being quite ridiculous about this myself, but we don't always see that as much as we should. So our problem is that we don't get what we want, but then verse 2, the end of verse 2 says, you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask God. In other words, you're looking in the wrong place trying to, to find answers somewhere other than in what God provides, then that's a problem. And how often do we do that? We think, you know, if only I could you know, have a new job, if only I could get this promotion, if only I could find that soulmate uh, to spend the rest of my life with, if only I could have that child that I've always wanted to have, if only I could, you know, just have a bigger bank account or whatever. I mean, you fill in the blank of if only, then I'll be fulfilled and satisfied. And a lot of times you get those things and it happens. And you're like, yeah, that's kind of still where I was before. Didn't really fill me because we're looking in the wrong place. I think it was a long, long time ago, a guy by the name of Blaise Pascal said that God has created us with a, a God-shaped vacuum inside of us. That is so true that there is a void inside of us that isn't filled with anything else. I mean, that there's just so much truth in that. And so if we're looking to to find answers or find fulfillment anywhere else, then it's not going to happen. He says you don't have because you don't ask God. Turn to God and, and, and let God fulfill and let God fill up that emptiness inside. But do you ever ask God for something and you don't get it? That happens too. And there can be a number of reasons, but one of the reasons that he talks about here in verse 3, he says because you ask with the wrong motives. The motive of I want what I want for my own self. Right? I'm asking for things for me. He says you want to spend what you get on your pleasures. And in spite of what we are sometimes told, God is not some genie in the sky who just wants to give us whatever we want. God is a good father who loves to give us good gifts, yes. But we need to let God define what that good gift is. And most of the time it isn't, you know, I say that, sometimes God does. He just blesses us, you know, and there are things that we perceive as good. God does do that. But there are other times where God gives us gifts that he would define as good that we might not define as being so good. Maybe it involves pain, maybe it involves loss, maybe, you know, we might look at it and say, how in the world is it a good thing to go through that? Well, maybe it drives us to our knees. Maybe it puts us in a place of dependence. Maybe it causes us to reevaluate our priorities. And it really puts us in a place of really turning toward God, maybe for the first time. That is a good thing from God's perspective. May not feel good to us at the time, but we need to allow God to define what is good. And so God wants to give us those things that, that certainly are good according to, to His definition, not necessarily according to ours. When we don't get what we want, and maybe we even ask God, but we still don't get it, then verse 4 says what can happen. He addresses them as adulterous people because he talks about how they have friendship with the world. Friendship with the world, with the world means enmity against God. Here's another way of saying that. You can give your allegiance to God, or you can give your allegiance to the world, but you can't do both. It's one or the other. 
Either you're turning to God and that's your source and He is your source, or you're looking for things in the world, this fulfillment out there in the world. It's, it's, it's not both. And he says, he's speaking to those that, that are believers here, and he says, you adulterous people. He calls them adulterous people. Why would he do that? Because really if we have devoted ourselves to one another, I mean to, to, to God in a relationship with, to God and Him to us, there's this, this mutual, that, that's a lot like a marriage. Scripture tells us that we're the bride of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, when he's talking about marriage, at the end he says, but I'm really talking about Christ in the church. You know, marriage is intended to be a reflection of God's relationship with us. We are fully committed to Him. He has fully committed Himself to us already, and we just respond to that with giving our hearts fully over to Him, just like in a marriage where you devote yourself to one another. And so he says that, that you're actually committing adultery if you become a friend of the world. If you begin to chase after another love, then that is spiritual adultery. Verse 5, what, how does God respond to that? It says that, that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us. In the Bible, it talks uh, in a few places about God being a jealous God. Now, I think that, that term and that, that idea has been misunderstood by many. In fact, I had a flashback. I don't know where I first saw this. It's been over a decade ago, maybe a couple, uh, when I saw something with Oprah Winfrey one time talking about God being a jealous God. And that just triggered in my head when I read this. I went back and looked, and I found um, just what she said about this. This is Oprah, her words. She said, she's describing a time in her past. She said, this great minister was preaching on how great God was and how omniscient and omnipresent and God is everything. And then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said jealous. And something struck me. I was like 27 or 28 and I'm thinking God is all, God is omnipresent and God is also jealous. God is jealous of me. And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit. And that is where the search for something more than doctrine started to stir within me. I find that very interesting that what led Oprah down a path that has not been a healthy path was this misunderstanding of what it means to say that God is a, is a jealous God. Her, what she heard is, God is jealous of me. Says, God is not jealous of any of us, but he's jealous for us for that, that love that we have devoted to him, and rightly so. Let me give you an example. Melanie, I'm going to pick on you for a minute. I hope you don't mind. But uh, Melanie over here is my sister in Christ, wonderful person. We have, you know, we're friends. We have a love in Christ for one another. But her husband, Alex, sitting beside her, that's a different relationship, right? You, you have a, a different type of love there and express affection and love differently to Alex. If I see that happening then I'm going to celebrate that. And I'm going to think this is a good thing because of that relationship. Now, if my wife, Sean, were to express that type of love and affection toward Alex, that would not be a good thing, right? I would have a problem with that. I would suddenly become jealous of that because I'm like, now, wait a minute. If, if you do that, that's good because that's your relationship. But, but my wife, and she would not do that, of course, but, but that would create jealousy in me. Why? Because we have an exclusive relationship with one another. We have made this pledge to one another that, that we are to love each other and only each other in this particular manner. And so that's why the scripture says that God is jealous because we have that level 
of, of a deep commitment relationship with him. It is an expression of God's love for us that he would be jealous for us. Not jealous of us, but jealous for us because we have said we're giving you everything. We're committing ourselves to you. And then if we go and commit ourselves and, and express our love that really only God deserves somewhere else, then that's a problem. That's what he's talking about. But then he goes on in verse 6 and he says, but he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And I don't know why it says favor there. It's the word grace. God opposes the proud and shows grace to the humble. It's the same word as the one in, in front of it. Um, but, but here's the point is that the way we experience how God interacts with us, whether God opposes us, or whether God extends grace to us depends on whether we come before him with humility or in pride. Pride, again, is going back to I want what I want, right? Pride is all about self and all about me. And so if I'm, if I'm dealing with God in pride, then I'm not willing to set aside my own selfish desires. But if I'm humble, then I'm acknowledging when I do mess up and I realize, man, I blew this, but God, I confess that to you and we receive God's grace and... Um, Humility is what opens the door for us to do that. So our problem and what we have to battle against is our sinful desires. Now, let's talk about what the solution is. Let's read verse 7 and following here, 7 through 10. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. So, we need to, to move past just a correct diagnosis. Because here's the, the problem, and this is what I would imagine, I didn't ask this question, but I'm sure those in the medical community get very frustrated with, is that they can give a correct diagnosis, but if a patient doesn't act on what they are told to do to respond to that diagnosis, they're not going to get any better. You know, if, if they, they say, look, you need this change in your lifestyle, you need to do this differently, this medication you need to take is going to help you, whatever it is, maybe a combination of all of the above, and they, they say this is what will help you, but the patient doesn't ever do anything with it, it doesn't help, does it? And in the same way, we can accurately diagnose our problem of our selfish, sinful desires, but then we got to do something about it. What do we do? Here's the solution. The solution, verse 7, is submitting to God. It says, submit yourselves then to God. Simple as that. Not easy, but, but it's not overly complicated either. The, the challenge is, going back to what we said a moment ago, we do have these selfish desires that rage inside of us. And so putting those aside, submitting ourselves, humbling ourselves before God is not necessarily an easy thing to do. That word uh, submit comes as a compound word in the, in the original language. It comes from two words. One word that means under and another word that means decree. So when you think about submitting yourself, think about putting yourself under the authority of a decree or an order of some sort. When, it, when we think about submitting ourselves to God, what we're doing is we're saying, God, I'm putting myself voluntarily underneath the authority of what you have to say. Scripture is, is how we, we know that, but, but I'm, I'm submitting myself to God. Now, the Bible tells us the time is coming where we will submit voluntarily or involuntarily to God. In Philippians 2, where it talks about every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. 
That time is coming, but this is different. This is talking about a voluntary submission that we bring upon ourselves. Submit yourselves to God. God is not yet forcing that submission upon us. And so we have to come to a point of acknowledging that, that, that our way doesn't work, you know, that, that we have a dead-end road that we're on, that we are sinful, and that we need God's grace, that we need what Jesus has done, submitting to God. That's how you begin a relationship with God in the first place. It's by saying, I, I'm acknowledging my sinfulness. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me to pay the price for my sinfulness. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So there is an acknowledgement of the Lordship of Christ or a submission to the authority of Jesus in our life. That's how you begin a relationship with God. And maybe for some today, that's the step that you need to take. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that here in just a few moments. We begin a relationship with God through submission. But you know, we ought to begin every day as believers, as followers of Jesus. We ought to begin every day the same way. We ought to, in fact, for that matter, we ought to begin every breath with that same thing. Submission to Christ. Saying, God, you are the authority and I am bowing myself. I am humbling myself, placing myself beneath you and your authority. When we do that, verse 7, it describes how we are to submit to God. And then it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I love this. To resist the devil and to submit to God are basically the same thing. In fact, we ought to spend less time focusing on how do I resist the devil and more time focusing on how do I submit to God because if you're submitting to God, you're resisting the devil. It's kind of like Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness and Satan you know, kept throwing stuff at him and ultimately he kept coming back to, no, this is what my father wants. You know, don't put the Lord your God to the test. It was, I'm going to do things the way my father says. I'm not going to go the way you go. And so he resisted Satan's temptation by submitting himself to the plan that, that the father had sent him to earth for in the first place. It's the same way that you and I resist. It's by submitting ourselves to what God says. And what happens when we do that? It says that, that when we resist the devil, he will flee from you. This is good stuff, y'all. We resist, Satan has to go. It's kind of like in the wilderness, Jesus, you know, he gave him the temptation, which by the way, you know, he was messing with him throughout the 40 days. I mean, it wasn't just like one conversation, but it comes to a head there at the end. And then Jesus, you know, gives his firm answer and that's it. And Satan, by the way, it says he left him alone until an opportune time. When he flees, it doesn't mean he's gone forever and he's never coming back. Unfortunately, he's going to be back. But in that moment, we resist and he has to flee. And then the next verse, verse 8, this is so encouraging. Verse 8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. What a great promise. Come near to God and he will come near to you. When I read that, that verse, the image that comes to mind for me is the image of the prodigal son story from Luke 15. I know many of you are probably familiar with that story. If you're not just in a nutshell, there were two sons. One of them decided he wanted his inheritance early. He was going to take all of his money and go have fun. So he takes his money. He leaves home. The Bible says that he spent it in wild living. I don't know exactly what that was, but he was partying it up, having a great time. And then all of a sudden, money runs out. Now what? He doesn't have a job. He, he doesn't even have food to eat. It tells us that, that he longed to eat what the pigs were eating. That's gross. But he was desperate. 
He was in a really, really low spot. And then Scripture says that he came to his senses. And coming to his senses meant this. He realized, what am I thinking? My father has people that work for him. He has hired hands and they have enough to eat. And so although I know I could never regain my position as a son in the household, maybe I should go back home and petition my father, just allow me to be like one of your hired servants. And so he decides to do that. He rehearses this in his mind and he decides to come back home. Now listen to what Luke 15 verse 20 says. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This picture of, of God's character is exactly what we're reading about in James chapter 4. Come near to God and he will come near to you. I think my favorite part of all this, and I just imagine what this would be like, you know, and anybody who has children, thankfully, um, my, my children are amazing. I've never, you know, been down that road of one of them just kind of totally leaving. And, but I know that happens sometimes. But, but you just imagine as a parent, you know, it would be difficult. And if a child, if things aren't right at home, that, that would be on your, your mind all the time. And so I picture this father just sitting out every day wondering, is today the day that my son is going to come back home? And he's watching and he's waiting. And one day... He actually sees him off in a distance. And he must have recognized him maybe by his, you know, the way he walked or whatever. But somehow from a distance he recognizes, that's my son. And what does the father do? He doesn't wait for his son to get to him. He, he, he meets him. You come near to God, he will come near to you. But it even says he runs toward him. He runs toward him. Now, any distinguished male adult in that culture just didn't run. That was considered to be beneath them. He didn't care. He ran to him, to this one that had treated him so poorly, that had taken his money and wasted it. And when he sees his son, his son begins to go through his rehearsed speech of how he has sinned against God and against him and all this. And, and the dad just, he just throws his arms around him and he kisses him and he, he welcomes him back into the family. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of what happens when we come near to God and God comes near to us. I don't know how many days that father in that story had been sitting there waiting and watching for his son to come back home. But there's only one time that he ran to meet his son. And that's because he couldn't go, go run to meet his son until his son had turned around and come back home. Once he was headed back home, then the father's like, oh, it's on now, right? And he just runs to meet him and embraces him and loves him. And that's exactly what our Father wants to do for you right now. You know, maybe for some of you, you think, you just don't know how far off I've been, and I've just been down this path for so long, and I've done so much bad, and it doesn't matter. God is ready to meet you and throw His arms around you and welcome you into the family. But as the rest of this says, the rest of the verses that we kind of touched, you know, turn your laughter to mourning, weeping, well, all that. What is, it's making this point. You have to come to the end of yourself. You have to come to a point of acknowledging your own sinfulness and saying, this isn't working. And I got to be serious about putting this aside. 
and, and coming back to God. But once you do that, God will meet you and welcome you. In fact, I believe that God's going to welcome some people into his family today for the very first time. There are going to be some that today say, I realize that I need to give my heart and my life to Jesus. In fact, I want to lead you through a prayer. If that's your desire today, whether you're here with us in person, whether you're watching online, your desire is to trust in Christ for the very first time. Maybe you've been on this path and been running from God for a long time, but today is the day to say, I need to come back home. You're coming to your senses today to say, I have a father who loves me. Why in the world would I run away from that any longer? If your desire is to trust in Christ for the very first time today, you've never come to that point of, of repentance and surrender and trusting in Jesus. And I want to lead you through a prayer. In fact, we're going to put the words up on the screen for you so you can just follow along. But something like this, just a prayer. It's got to be what's in your heart is what matters more than anything. But let's just bow our heads for a moment of prayer. And I want to invite you today to give your heart to Jesus if you haven't done that. For the very first time today, trust Him by praying a prayer like this. God, I confess today that I've been following my own selfish desires, but that's a dead-end road. Right now, I submit myself to you. I turn away from my sin, and I place my faith in Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross to pay for my sins and rose again on the third day. Lord Jesus, I give my heart and my life to you from this day forward. Amen.